Well, hey, good morning. It is good to be together to open God's Word and to worship God together. And so you are going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. If you need a Bible, you got some people walking around, just slip up a hand. They will put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with us. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you just to take that with you. God's Word, the Word of life. And so... Uh, we invite you to dive into that. Hopefully on your way in, also you received uh, one of these grace notes uh, with different ways to connect and engage, to, to serve and to be involved. Lots of great things that are going on, so make sure you check those out. And then uh, just as important, we'd love to know how to be praying for you to help you take that next step of faith forward, whatever that looks like for you. Whether it's beginning a relationship with Jesus, uh, getting in, plugged into community, uh, getting engaged in serving. And so on the bottom of that, you can just uh, tear that little connection card off with any uh, prayer requests, any, any ways that you're looking to get connected. And you can just drop that off in the offering box on your way out the door uh, at the end of our, our time together. But it has been a very full week uh, here at Grace. Um, the... Uh, appreciate all of you who on a Thursday night gathered here in this space just to, to worship for our monthly worship night, but also as we focus our prayers around uh, everything going on in the Middle East and Israel and Palestine and specifically in Gaza. And uh, it's just beautiful as a church just to get on our knees and just to pray uh, for all the needs that are over there. And so you know that uh, I had a, a phone call Thursday with the other lead pastors of the Grace Family of Churches and uh, and apart from obviously praying, and we're calling all of our churches to continue to pray, uh, especially uh, for our ministry partners that are over there in that part of the world. Uh, but we are, we are looking at how we can mobilize. How are we being called by God in compassionate and generous response to the needs that are over there? And it is such a difficult situation right now that, uh, that we are being very cautious with what that looks like. Um, there, there are some uh, ministry partners, obviously, that are on the ground with uh, our, our friends with Young Life, uh, with Kenny and Kristen Schmidt. Uh, Kenny was a youth pastor. Grace Neville is now a professor over there, lives in the West Bank. Um, and uh, is good friends with a pastor, actually, who uh, is, um, and this is Thursday morning that we were having this conversation uh, and looking at maybe we can mobilize uh, resources from around the Grace Family of Churches to help this pastor that lives in Gaza, um, is a Palestinian Christian there in Gaza, and, uh, and is a part of a church that, was giving, that is giving refuge uh, to several hundred uh, families, both Christian and Muslim families. This is a safe place. Uh, in, in the midst of the, the violence and the war going on around them. But I don't know if you, if you saw uh, that actually on Friday, that same church uh, was hit um, by a, a missile and uh, that killed uh, a, a dozen or so people. And so, um, so we are uh, really actively trying to figure out how do we engage. I tell you all of that really to continue to call you to pray. As your pastor, I feel like it's my role, one, that, that we uh, think biblically about what is going on. Uh, both from the realm of God's heart through the whole Bible and specifically revealed in the person of Jesus uh, and the call to the church. And then two, that we move together in active, compassionate, sacrificial response. 
I, I wish, and, and to that end, I stand here and say, I wish I had a clear path forward, but I want you to know that we are, um, we are, are wrestling through the best way to engage in a very, in a very complex situation. And so please continue to pray. And so that was Thursday night, and then Friday we gathered, uh, or sorry, Saturday, uh, we gathered with the men of the church, many of you guys that were here in this room last night, uh, praying together, worshiping, uh, and being challenged. And the big challenge that we left last night with was, what does it mean as a man, and this applies to all of us, but what does it mean as a man to live into this abundant life in Christ? That was the word we kept using, the abundant life of Christ. A life of faithfulness, of integrity, of character, of passion. And that's really where we've been this whole time in Philippians. And Paul writing this letter to this little church that was facing so many challenges, global challenges in the world around them, cultural challenges in their society, interpersonal, relational challenges within the church, uh, the pressure to, to give up on this faith in the midst of all of the difficulties that were surrounding them. And Paul, from a prison cell in Rome, writes this letter called the Letter of Joy, reminding them who they are in this world, who they belong to, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, and calling them back together as God's people with a united heart, a unified mind, centered around the person of Jesus. And so we're coming to the end uh, in the, the next couple weeks, the, the end of this amazing, like, rich and deep letter. We, just to keep that constant reminder that this letter as a whole is an invitation into a fruitful life in God, a, a life of depth and impact, a flourishing life of faith, and the life that we all desire at our core. And so we, I want us to read uh, chapter four, and then we will pull some things out of that, I hope, that we can learn to live into and carry with us into the week. And so if you'll stand with me, I'm gonna read this whole chapter that will really today only be focused on uh, verses 10 through 13. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace 
will be with you. Now, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have an opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. So I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no other church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Now, even in Thessalonica, you sent me aid uh, to help for my needs once and again. And it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and even more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, this fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So to God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God's word. You may be seated. I wanted to read this passage because where we're going this morning is probably the quote in Philippians that is uh, the, the, the scripture, the passage in Philippians that is the most quoted. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, some translations go on and fill the him in, assume, making the assumption, it's a, it's a good assumption, that who Paul is talking about is the one that Paul has been talking about the entire letter, which is Jesus. And so you may have heard that quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Anybody heard that before? Right? Anybody seen that on a sports poster of Michael Jordan dunking a basketball or Somebody going for a touchdown, an eagle flying in the sky. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a, it's a, it's a passage that gets used with this note of triumph and victory. But it's important that we read it actually in the context because it is a powerful word, but maybe not powerful in the ways that that verse has been applied. So we kind of back up a little bit. Last week we talked about this, this uh, invitation and challenge that Paul gives to not be anxious about anything. And it's not just this philosophical Zen ideal, but it's actually an incredible, incredibly practical help that Paul is extending. Even as he says, finally, in other words, I'm coming to the point Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable or just, pure, lovely, commendable, with excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This invitation 
to not be anxious about anything, even in the midst, as Paul has felt so personally and as we all know so intimately, in the midst of financial pressure and global conflict and relational strife that Paul has talked about and then says, don't be anxious. He's giving them the path forward of setting your minds intentionally on the things of God, resetting constantly our, 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 the focus of our things on the things that are true and good and beautiful. And so the question becomes for us, what are you filling your mind with? I mean, just really practically think about over the last week, what have you allowed into your brain? Whether via Netflix or television or radio or podcast or book or magazine or conversation, what are you filling your mind with? What are you dwelling on? And are those things drawing your hearts and thoughts to the, the eternal, glorious, powerful reality of the unconditional love and overwhelming grace of Jesus? Or are they convincing you that you're a mess, this world's a mess, and there's actually no hope? What are you thinking about? And then he continues on, not just simply, what are you setting, what are you, what are you thinking about? What are you filling your mind with? But he tells him, put into the practice, put into practice, put into action the things that you've seen in me. Anything you've learned from me, anything you've seen me do, anything you've watched uh, happen in my life, Paul has said, as I lived among you. As I discipled you and helped you grow in your faith, as you came into an understanding of Jesus and his way of life in this world, practice it. And I love that word practice because that, that, that idea of practice means that you haven't figured it out yet. I, I think about my boys playing soccer and as they've advanced uh, from, you know, rec league into to academy and club teams and, and as they've continued to grow both individually and as a team, that the constant thing that, they, that is moving them forward is what? Practice. Over and over and over again. Practice. And they mess up and they lose a game or they miss the shot and what do they do? Practice. And Paul's saying, practice these things you've seen, learn from me. The, the, the ways of life, the rhythms and the patterns. And so the question becomes for us, not just what are you filling your mind with, but what practices, rhythms are you building into your life? How do you start your day? What do you do right before you go to bed? What, what rhythms of prayer, of, of allowing the, these words of life that God has so graciously given us uh, saturate our mind and our soul? What practices of, of, of generosity? What, what practices of, of, of repentance and prayer? What, what practices are we building of true community and authenticity? And whose example are you following? Just real, I mean, just between you and God. Like, who are your heroes? Like, who are the people that you're thinking, man, if I could just get my life to look more like their life? 
there's some famous mommy blog that is telling you exactly what you need to really succeed as a parent. I mean, it's not bad. But just, I think it's important that we, we take stock and just recognize, like, who are we aiming our lives after? Is it the celebrity culture that everyone, you know, could, uh, just exalts without thinking? Now, what, what, are, what examples are we following? And as he's reflecting, and then in this challenge, Paul declares, it's not just on you. In fact, it's not going to be by you getting your mind exactly right and putting everything into practice in the perfect way. But our hope is that the God of peace is with you. The God of peace is with you. You are not alone. You're not stuck. You're not hopeless. Your story hasn't been written. The God of peace, shalom, wholeness, well-being is with you. And then as Paul, in this, this moment of rejoicing and joy, this invitation into peace, thinks about the thing that is giving him joy, what he is thankful for. In Philippians 4.10, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It's interesting that phrase because Paul multiple times in, in uh, Philippians uh, talks about rejoice, rejoice. And in multiple, throughout his letters, he talks about joy. But this is the only time that he actually uses this particular phrase, which is joy megalo is the word there in the Greek. Mega joy. We translate it down a little bit. I rejoice greatly. I have a lot of joy. But, like, but Paul is saying here, and hasn't said it anywhere else, I rejoice in the extreme. And why? Because you've revived or allowed to blossom again, is the word. You're concerned for me. Now, this actually mirrors Philippians 1.7. That word for concern is the same word in 1-7 that when Paul says, I have this mind or this concern, which means my, this mind for you, this thoughtful care, this common concern about all of you. And he's now ending his letter saying, and you have this thoughtful concern, this care for me. Your mind is for me. It's actually the same word in Philippians 2 when he says you should have the mind of Christ, the common concern, the care, the thoughtfulness of Christ who gave up his life for us that we could be exalted. It's my great joy that you've allowed to blossom again this care and this concern 
We don't know why, but it seems like that there's been a disconnect for an extended period of time between Paul and these Philippians. Like I said, it, I've said before, it's been about 11 years since he planted that church, and now he's in prison in Rome. That's a lot of years to pass. And, and so there's been a, a, apparently a, a, a period of time in which he hasn't heard from the Philippians. So they were faithful supporters of his all throughout his ministry. Acts records how when he's in... Uh, when he's in Athens, that he is, uh, he's working by, by making tents to supplement his income. And then he gets a gift from Macedonia, which is the, where uh, Philippi, uh, the city, it's the region where the city uh, exists. And uh, this gift comes from this church, which allows him to focus his time on ministry and on preaching the gospel. In uh, 2 Corinthians, he talks, uh, he says, in chapter 8, he writes to the Corinthians about the Philippians. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, of which Philippi is part of that. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not what we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so Paul has seen this generosity, this generous spirit, this sacrificial heart of the Philippians. But since that time, there's been uh, an extended period in which he hasn't heard from him until Epaphroditus shows up again with another gift for him. But what he makes really clear is that what is causing his heart to rejoice with so much abundance, this megala joy wasn't the gift itself. It wasn't the financial provision. It wasn't the, the, the support. It was the care and the concern of the Philippians for him and their determination to see ministry flourish. That he makes it clear that I'm not happy because I need your support. I don't need your financial help. In fact, one translator uh, translated that verse as saying, my gratitude is not a beggar's thanks for charity. In fact, he continues on. No, I've actually learned to be content in every situation. In any situation in which I find myself whether I'm lacking or I have what I need in abundance. Whether I'm in a low place. Or I'm abounding. I've learned to be content. So two things here. One, that Paul's joy wasn't in his needs being provided for. His joy was in watching his spiritual children live lives of generosity and sacrifice, of care and compassion. And two, there's something that Paul has that he's inviting them into 
a life of contentment. Do you know what that means for you? To live a life that is content, at rest, satisfied? And the reality is that we live in a world of discontent. that breeds discontentment. In fact, we have an entire multi-billion dollar industry that is completely focused on how to make you discontent and convince you that you need what you don't have. This shouldn't surprise any of us. We know that, but it is the water that we swim in, so sometimes it's easy to forget. Marketing and advertising to convince you that you're lacking something that you weren't even aware that you were missing in the first place. That we're bombarded with this message constantly that to be happy, we need more things, less wrinkles, better vacations, fewer troubles. We're discontent in our jobs, in our marriages, in our church, in our homes. In most areas of our lives, we have this vague, nagging sense that we are missing out on something. And we're being sold constantly that if we just had this or that, everything would be better. And everyone else actually has it better than you. If you would only buy the product that they buy. Anyone? Are we in agreement on this? Again, go back to the first question I asked. What did you fill your mind with last week? And how much of what you filled your mind with last week was somebody trying to convince you that you needed something that they have that you don't have, but if you had it, your life would be better? I mean, can you imagine an advertisement at the Super Bowl? for a 2007 Honda Accord with 200,000 miles. I mean, sure, it leaks a little oil, but it's reliable, and interest rates don't matter because it's completely paid for. It's good enough for you, right? How well would that sell? And then we, this social media world that we live in, this culture of comparison on steroids, that's not just discontentment from uh, the, the, these, the marketing world of, of product placement, of what you need to be happy, but now I'm looking at everyone else's lives who are obviously way happier than I am, whose children behave better, whose marriages are happier, whose jobs are better, whose vacations are better. And it's not even real. And we know this consciously. It's filters and angles and a thousand shots to get the perfect picture. And yes, the sunset is behind me, but what you don't see is my boy setting fire to the pier behind the camera. I mean, I don't know why I hate my body, but I'm spending hours a day looking at others who have more perfect bodies trying to hide my imperfections to give a glimpse to the world of my good side. 
being sold products that guarantee to help me be fitter, slimmer, younger, more glowing and free from aches and pains and acne, unlike, uh, which assumes that I am too old, too wrinkly, too fat, and I'm not supposed to experience any discomfort or pain. So to be real personal, which I know you're excited about, or real nervous about where I'm going. Based on the advertising that I watch, or that I see, whether I'm watching an NFL game this afternoon, or in my social media feed, what I know is true is that I should have a full, gorgeous head of hair. Golden locks blowing in the wind like Fabio. And I realized, thank you, Danny, that I don't. In fact, I'm, I'm balding, and, and that's a problem. But if I only bought the right gel or cream or pill or scalp massager, man, I'd be sexier, <laughs> healthier, happier. I would go on better vacations. I would drive a nicer car. Life would be better. Amen? Do I stop and think for a second, who's telling me this? That this is a problem, that I'm losing my hair and my age? And is the person telling me this, do they actually care anything about me? Do they care about my family? Do they care about my marriage? Do they care about my character? Do they care about my soul? And the reality is, who am I trying to be sexy for? I have an amazing wife. And I don't think Sadie is staying or going to leave because of my hair or lack thereof. And the reality is I'm actually pretty healthy. And I'm super thankful for the, the truck that I drive. And we have great friends and we get to do really cool things. And I miss in this discontent about a problem that I didn't even know I had that I have a whole lot of things to be really thankful for, and there's a whole lot of blessings in my life. Now, I just share that from something I deal with. But maybe there's one or two things that it brings to mind for you. But this isn't new. This wasn't invented in the 1950s with the modern advertising age. I mean, this was the first temptation. This was the serpent with Eve convincing her that there was something she was missing, something that God was holding out on, that she was lacking, that she wasn't enough, that if she just had this thing, whether it's an Apple or an iPhone, she would be like God. Because God was holding out on her. At the core of all of this is a question of trusting God. Does he actually see me? Does he know what I need? And does he care? Is he going to show up for me? Is he the one that can provide for me? Is there going to be enough? Am I actually alone in this world and it's on me to navigate life and accumulate enough to make sure that I can maximize pleasure and minimize pain? 
that I'll survive in this scary world. That word content that Paul uses is a favorite word of the Stoics at the time. And what it means is one who exercises self-sufficiency in relation to their own inner world. An independent person, sufficient to himself and in need of no one else. In 1 Timothy 6.6, Paul's writing a letter to his young disciple. And he says, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we, can take nothing out, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now Paul makes it clear that contentment is not the same thing as complacency. I mean, in just in the chapter before, in chapter three, he's already said that, that I've not obtained yet what Christ has for me or been made perfect, but that I press on. Forgetting one thing, or but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That contentment isn't stagnancy or the lack of pursuit. It's pursuing the right things. So how? How do we live this life of contentment? Well, Paul says that he has a secret. And that word secret there is also the word mystery, and it calls to mind what would have been the mystery cults of his day. These groups of people that were convinced they had some hidden knowledge of how the world works, and that through initiation had come to discovery. And Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That I have been thoroughly initiated into this way of being. And what is that secret? I can do all things through Christ or him who strengthens me that the secret of contentment, of peace, of wholeness, is the indwelling power of Jesus with us and in us and for us. I have the power, Paul says, 
to face any situation and circumstance I'm in, whether it's good or bad, painful or joyful, abundance or lack, in union with the one who continuously infuses me with strength. What Paul is actually saying is that in any circumstance I find myself, it is Jesus who I am pursuing. He is the one I'm hungering after. He is the one that I'm longing for. He is the one that I'm seeking. And in that place, I can face anything. That verse that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me it is not about you accomplishing the dreams of your life. It's not about you winning the football championship or getting the promotion. It's about as you go through life and face the inevitable pains and joys, sufferings and triumphs, that Christ is in you and with you and for you and pouring his life out through you for the sake of others. It's about building a life that lasts, a life that counts, that there is nothing you can add to your life or that you can change for yourself that will give you what your soul craves. That that is an empty and endless pursuit. But that Jesus invites you to more. That he will give you what you need. And we'll get into this more next week as we finish out the rest of Philippians, but God's desire is that you would live a life of peace and joy and freedom in a world of anxiety and bondage. And Paul recognizes, as he writes to Timothy, as he alludes to in Philippians, that is our pursuit of stuff that can shipwreck our faith. And he writes that money, he doesn't say money itself is the root of all evil, but he says that the love of money, that wealth is a blessing, but it's also deceitful and can choke out the seed of God's word in your life. The question becomes, what are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? So as we come to a close and respond in worship, as we come back to the table and this, this weekly rhythm of reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, we come to the communion table, that reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus that sacrificial act in which he gave his life so that we might have life, that his blood was shed, that we might be forgiven and free. And we take communion as that continual reminder of Christ in us and with us and for us. Before we take communion, as we worship, question for each of us, in light of this scripture, what do I need to repent of? 
What do I need to change my mind about that I've become convinced of, that I need in this world or that I'm pursuing or seeking that is not what God's inviting me into? What do I need to let go of and release and trust him? What anxieties or worries are plaguing my soul that I need to let lay at the foot of the cross and trust the God that who sees me and will care for me? Or do I need to let go of control or the illusion of control in my life? And what do I need to receive? What is it that even this morning God is wanting to pour into your soul? to bring you to a place of rest and peace, a place of contentment. May you know the secret that Paul knew, the power of Christ available for you, the presence of Christ in you, the promise of Christ is hope for always. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these powerful words that you gave Paul to give to that little church that still speak into our church and our world today. God, even right now, for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't surrendered their life to you and received that forgiveness that you offer, that invitation into this new resurrected life, I pray even right now that they would surrender their lives to you and receive you, Christ, as Lord and Savior. And God, for those who walk, have walked with you, whether it's for days or for years, God, will you cut off from us any lie, any place that we have been convinced of or committed to to try to find satisfaction in life apart from you. Any lie we believe about who we are, what we're lacking, that there's not enough, that I'm not enough. God, I pray, even if it's painful, will you rise to the surface any place of discontent? that in faith we can surrender that to you to receive whatever it is you have for us. Help us be honest with you, God. You already know. Help us be honest with ourselves, God. Set us free. In the name of Jesus, amen.